0: The following podcast is a Dear Media production.
1: I'm Anisha Ramakrishna, and I'm an Indian entrepreneur and TV personality with Big Dick Energy. You may know me from Bravo TV's Family Karma and, of course, social media. I grew up in a very conservative Indian family, but I have always forged my own path and live life on my own terms. I recently left my successful career in New York City and my long-term relationship to pursue my own fashion business. I'm single in my mid thirties and I live with my parents. I'm currently cringing and I know you are too. Join me as I spill the chai on my own cringeworthy personal life experiences every Thursday, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Hi everybody, it's Kat Sadler and this is, it sure is a beautiful day. I've spent decades in TV broadcasting and conducted hundreds, if not thousands, of interviews in the span of my career. And on this show, the conversations continue. My goal is that every episode feels entirely brand new, but also like coming home. Let's get into it. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. It's Kat, and this is It Sure Is a Beautiful Day. I'm so glad that you've landed here. I hope your new year is off to a wonderful start. I'm feeling good. I gotta say, I've just, I'm back on my workout grind, um, taking care of myself, and feeling the love. I've just gotten so much feedback from last week's episode and it just really really warms my heart. I love that you guys are responding so much. And yeah, I'm just I'm just over here all up in my feelings um celebrating I guess this new lease on life in 2022. So I hope you are in the same kind of space. But here is the reality, right? Not everybody is. And the fact of the matter is is we're still living in a pandemic. People are still suffering from the sickness that goes along with the pandemic, of course, but also all of the the other effects of of how life has changed, and people in many ways are down and out, right? We kind of underestimate that the holidays are are tough for people. And, you know, it's not always like, oh, brand new year, new slate, reset. Of course, it's all shiny and new. It's not like that for everybody, which is why I wanted to have today's guest on the show. We're going a little against type. And what I mean by that is firstly, I have a male guest today. And, you know, most of you who listen to this show are females. And most of the conversation I have on this show are with females. Um, But Doug Bobst has become a friend of mine through the power of social media. And I am so, I'm so blown away by how this man lives his life and completely just rocked by his story. Um, He has a podcast called The Adversity Advantage. He, by trade, is a fitness trainer and a motivator and a life coach, essentially. He has written three different books. And as he will explain it in our conversation today, he was staring death in the face. He was prepared to die and in many ways subconsciously screaming for help. He was incarcerated. He had been addicted to Oxycontin and a myriad of drugs. As he, again, will tell you, he was crippled. He was having panic attacks. He was dealing with so much unresolved trauma. He was numbing his pain. Half of his left nostril was missing literally because of his abuse of his drugs in his life. And now he is the complete, extreme, 180 degree opposite of that. He, I mean, talk about a rock bottom. He almost lost his life and he goes to jail. He has this opportunity and I wanted to share his story, especially now, because it's a story of hope. It is a story of renewal. It is a story of maybe you're listening to this and you're like, woe is me, victim mentality, down and out, pissed at life. Maybe you're struggling. And I just, I I love listening to Doug because he, he is just, he is walking the walk of, growth mindset. You're not a victim. Habit formation. Everyday matters. What you can do. And I just I love his mind. and He has a beautiful heart and he's a new friend. So not only do we get into all of that in regards to his story, he gives you guys great advice on how to approach the everyday, how to maybe get unstuck. And then we even get into relationships a little bit because um, I met Doug when I was still very single and I, you know, he had listened to our show and he's like, you know, you and Kate are always talking about dating. He's like, but what about the guy's perspective? I'm like, you know, you have a point. (laughs) You have a point. So he sheds some light on what it's like to be a dude and their perspective in the the space of romantic relationships and dating and, and maybe what, you know, might help us women as we are Trying to demystify the man a little bit. So, a fun little um, bit of our conversation is dedicated to that as well. So, I think you're going to enjoy this. I know that you will. Doug's just so kick ass. So, without further ado, here is our conversation sending you all so, so, so much love. Please remember, remember, remember to tag me on social media. If you listen to the show, just grab a screen grab of that. Throw it up on social, tag either myself, I am Kat Sadler, or tag our podcast Instagram account, A B D with Kat. Let us know your thoughts. You know, share the show. Tell a friend. That helps just spread, I guess, the reach and the power of what we're trying to do here. So that would mean so, so much to me. And I know I say it every week, but go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Let me know your actual thoughts about which episodes are your favorite what aren't your favorites what you'd like to hear more of who you'd like to see on the show so all of that i really do consider and it really does mean a lot and really does sustain the life of this show on the airwaves so i love you guys here it is doug bobst and me doug thank you for for coming to the show. It sure is a beautiful day to see you again, to converse with you again. You were kind enough to have me on your incredibly powerful podcast, The Adversity Advantage. And I'm so excited to learn more about your story and to get deep into conversation with you because I think what you represent in so many ways is exactly what people need right now more than ever. And it's certainly what this show is intended to do. I just, I really believe your story is about hope and renewal and all the things that, you know, are really, people are focusing on not only this time of year at the beginning of 2022, but man, People are going through it. I mean, going through it because we already have some of our own personal struggles or professional struggles, but then you mix in a pandemic and and the uncertainty of it all. And here we are, two years later, still kind of navigating this this new life. So, welcome and thanks for taking the time.
0: Well, thanks for having me, and it's great to see you. It's it sure is a beautiful day. And anytime I get to have a conversation with uh, somebody like yourself, where I feel like we have so much in common. I think that's grounds to be able to have an impactful conversation to not only deepen the connection that between us, but also help people that are listening to this as well.
1: Yeah. You know, it's so funny to hear you say we have so much in common because yes, on, on many levels, you know, you're out there teaching people, you're trying to motivate and help people be the best version of themselves. And I'm certainly doing that as well. But in other ways, we have nothing in common in that you were a drug addict. You were addicted to OxyContin. You were incarcerated. You were down. You were out. And I cannot wait for you to share more of that story because you are a living, breathing example of someone who literally was in many ways, staring death in the face and you came out of it. And not only did you come out of it, you're blossoming. And not only are you blossoming, but you're helping share and spread the power of your story so others can benefit. So take us back. If you will, by the way, everybody, Doug is coming to us from Baltimore where it's very cold today (laughs) I feel so bad because I can see outside your window. Like I can see it almost looks blue. It looks cold and you're inside and I'm inside staring at palm trees and roses, you know, here in California. Um, But you're from Maryland. I don't want to spend too much time like going down the, the path of your past, but I do think, you know, it's important to share just how kind of low you were. So when you were at the height of your addiction and you were in pain, and you were using opiates, I don't know if there are a lot of things you were using, but to numb out, essentially, what, what was going on with you at the time? Looking back at that point in your life, what was happening that had you choosing that kind of toxic behavior?
0: Well, this is where I think you and I do have a lot in common in that both of our stories, while maybe some of the results and decisions we made were slightly different, I think we both we were mismanaging trauma, mismanaging pain, had a lot of insecurities that we never dealt with that we ended up dealing with them in different ways. And for me, some of my insecurities growing up were my parents got divorced when I was five and it was a pretty bad divorce. Like they didn't, my parents hardly talked to each other throughout that process. And it was back in the early 90s where the divorce rate was significantly lower. So I was like the only kid in my friend group whose parents were split. And I was like, well, what's wrong with me? Like, why are they not together? And then I was bullied. I was picked on a lot in school. I was told that I think like I had down syndrome and I just started to develop this, like what's wrong with me mentality. And then on top of all that, I, I loved sports. I love playing sports, watching sports, collecting sports cards, but I was unathletic as they came. I was cut from the teams I, I never had an opportunity to like play varsity sports, even though all my friends did. And so I had this mindset of like, like, what's wrong with like, what's wrong with me? Like, why is this happening to me? And almost slowly, as I look back, like like going down that the victim mindset path, as I look now, because I was so young that I didn't understand it, but I was also not really doing as much to become my own person during that time. And I continue to try to fit in with other people and, and run other people's races, despite the fact that I wasn't fitting into those boxes. And. The first opportunity I think I got to numb this pain I'm talking about was through food. I started to eat super unhealthy when I was a kid and would eat like cinnamon buns, like all kinds of breakfast sausages, pasta, fast food, you name it as a kid. And I started to get pudgy and now I'm wearing like husky pants. I'm wearing bigger size clothes than my friends are. And I'm starting to develop belly fat when I'm a young kid. And again, it's like, I'm I'm wondering what's wrong with me. Why is this happening to me? My friends aren't. And then I never had a girlfriend in grade school because I was so unconfident to ask out the girls and the pretty girls weren't interested in me anyway, because I was always like the goofy looking unathletic kid who was, whose self-confidence was in the ground. And what really became the big catalyst in my addiction was, was pot. And I, I say this now because I know obviously pot is super legal now and there's a lot of people that use it for medicinal purposes and that sort of thing. But the important thing for me to share is like why I was doing it. I wasn't doing it for medicinal purposes. I was doing it to numb pain. I was chasing that feeling that it gave me. I took a hit off a pot of a pot pipe when I was 14. I felt all these insecurities go away. I felt all the fears go go away. I didn't have to worry if I was going to have a girlfriend. I didn't have to worry if I was going to be successful. I didn't have to worry what my family dynamic was going to look like. I could be with myself in that moment. No matter what, and so I continue to chase that numbing feeling, and one hit led to two hits. I'm smoking every day. Then I'm now creating tension in my in my households. My mom and I have a really tra- traumatic falling out where I end up getting kicked out of her house on my 16th birthday because she busted me selling a little bit of pot. Where I was I was doing that to support my habit. Change schools within 24 hours, cat. Change schools. Go up to my dad's house because they thought that. Because I was making these decisions in this one environment, that if I just changed environments completely, that it would fix all my problems. But really, it really created more insecurities, more pain, more trauma, mm-hmm. where I had to continue to, to chase that same high. Barely graduated high school because I didn't go to class, because all my friends and I did was skip class to, to smoke. And then shortly after I graduated high school was where things really took a turn for worse and fast. Mm. I'm like 17 years old and started to now. Sell pot to not only support my habit, but to also make money. Mm. And then once you start to sell drugs, now you're meeting more people that have harder drugs. And I got offered a a hit of cocaine and um, started experimenting with that. Then I started doing that every day. And cocaine and my anxiety and insecurities that I had went about as well together as somebody trying to lose weight and eat pizza, and it just didn't work. Started to develop massive panic attacks to the point where I couldn't even hang out with my friends and get high anymore. Without having an anxiety attack. And what initially, and then what eventually brought me to my knees and then crippled me was Oxycontin, like you said. And again, like, like going back to the pot, I never in a million years thought that my first hit of pot would, would eventually lead me to this point. Like nobody does, right? Or we wouldn't do it. But I just continued to have to chase that, that numbing feeling. I had to continue to do whatever it could to numb the pain that I had. And I got offered a five milligram Percocet by my friend, and I felt that same monkey come off my back that I felt with the pot. And then that was like the highway to hell. Five milligrams quickly, led to 10 a day, 20, 40, 80, all the way up until I'm doing three, 400 milligrams of Oxycontin every single day.
1: Oh my God. To the point
0: where half my left nostril was missing. And so that was like at the depths of my addiction. And then eventually I got arrested and then went to jail. And ironically, jail is what saved my life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. I did know that that's how eventually you went to jail was that you got pulled over, right? And you, drugs were discovered in your car and you, with this intent to sell. What was that like? Because in many ways, as you just described, jail saved your life. Getting pulled over saved your life. I mean, that was one of those moments that all of the variables collided for whatever reason that you get pulled over and you go to jail. And then not only are you in jail, but you have to detox in jail, like cold Turkey. Can you tell us what those first couple months, I mean, imagine it's weeks, months to that you're, you're essentially getting clean. What that was like. What do you remember about that? And by the way, everyone, this was what, 2008, 2008.
0: Yeah, 2008 Cinco de Mayo of 2008 is when I got arrested was when I was riding around to go make a drug deal, which I think looking back subconsciously, I think I wanted to get caught Mm. because we had, by the time I was 20, we had buried, which was when I got arrested. We had buried several of our friends and our friend group. And I'm not talking just Facebook friends. I'm not talking people that I would see. Like if I went into a store, I'm talking people in our friend group. I was going to funerals left and right when I was a kid. So I knew that I subconsciously knew that I was either gonna die somehow, either by, by suicide, by overdose, or just by getting involved in some like crazy drug transaction if, if things kept going the way they did. So the story goes like this, cause it's kind of, this is kind of interesting how it all played out. So Cinco de Mayo was is one of the, the biggest drinking nights of the year. And I had a busted headlight that I had been meaning to fix, but I didn't because during that time, when you're in the height of addiction, all you care about is who you're doing drugs with, what you're doing, when you're going to do it, that sort of thing. So I didn't fix it. There's a cop running radar. I flashed my high beams at the cop, thinking that that would hide the fact that I had a busted headlight, but it obviously just gave him a reason to pull me over. One thing leads to the next. He asks me if I can search his car or if he can search my car. And I say yes, which is like a cardinal sin in the drug dealing game. So I, again, I think subconsciously I wanted to get caught. Didn't fix the headlight, told him he could search my car. And then he finds the, he found a half a pound of pot. He found $2,000 in cash. He found a scale. And then I'm taken to jail, bailed out by my dad the next day. And then I end up going to court a few months later. And this is September. And the judge sentenced me to five years, suspended everything but 90 days, five years probation, 200 hours community service, all kinds of fines and drug classes, and convicted me of the felony, which was the possession with the intent to distribute marijuana. But he said, Doug, I'm going to give you a deal. And I'm like, deal. I'm like, after hearing that, like, where's the deal? <laughs> and he was like, if you complete everything without messing up, no misprobation appointments, no failed drug tests, you do your community service, all that, I'll take the felony conviction off your record at the end of the five years. And I didn't think I was going to live to see my 25th birthday, Kat, because like I said, I went to a bunch of funerals when I was a kid. Just my trajectory was just going nowhere good, super fast. And I reported to jail a week after my 21st birthday, and I just remember go when I walked through the gates of the j- of jail, I cried because I didn't want to go in. You know, I remember just kissing my family goodbye, and it was like right after I gotten high for the last time, and I had all these crazy mix of emotions—obviously fear, anger, uncertainty, like you name it—and I, I cried when I ent- when I went to to the went into the gates of jail because I didn't want to go in. And when I left, I cried because I didn't want to leave. And, and here's what happened. So you you were mentioning my detox, like get in there. And having to to, to share a cell with somebody in such close quarters when you're feeling that, like that is one of the most humbling things you'll ever go through as a human being. And the detox was like three weeks straight of the worst case of the flu. It was like uncontrollable bowel movements, vomiting, hot and cold sweats, Uh, depression, sleepless nights, aches and pains. And the worst feeling though, for me was it felt like I was trying to crawl out of my own skin the whole time. Uh. But as I look back and I've gotten to become more spiritual, I accepted as a time where the old me was leaving my body so that the new me could become whole. And my soon to be cellmate was sitting there at the Scrabble table who looked like a more he looked like a more jacked uh, version of Brad Pitt from Fight Club. It's kind of like the, how I des- I like to describe him. It's just for some reference, but mm-hmm. he was like, "You're gonna start working out with me when you get through your detox." And I was just like, "Dude, there's no way." Like, have you seen me? I could have been a model for Pillsbury at the time. Like, there's no way this is happening. And he was like, "All right, man, whatever." He could just tell by looking at me that there was something off with me. He could tell I was unconfident. He could tell that he could tell that I spoke very softly. He could tell that my shoulders are just rounded forward. And I just was completely debilitated self-esteem wise. And so shortly after I see him work out and he's doing thousands of push ups, hundreds of pull-ups, he's like running all over the place in the common area of the jail. And I'm like, who is this guy? And one night we were uh, just talking to each other in the cell and he was asking me more questions about my story. He was like, so like what happened? And like, why are you here? And, and so I started blaming everybody for my problems. I started blaming my parents for their divorce. I started blaming the girls for rejecting me. I started blaming people for bullying me. And I'll just give you like the PG version of what he said. He said, like, quit being a wuss, like stop being a victim. And I just was like, wait, what did you just say? Because, you know, in those moments when we're feeling the most vulnerable, we want to be coddled. We want to be told what we want to hear. We don't want to be told what we need to hear. And that's what kind of what he gave me. And I was just like, well, what do you mean? he was like, there's plenty of people that go through what you went through and they're not in jail, are they?
1: Wow.
0: And I was just like, yeah, you're right. He was like, there's plenty of people that went through what you went through and made different choices. And I was just like, yeah. He was like, you chose to get yourself here, whether you like it or not. He's like, you made choices based on your circumstances to get yourself here. And he was like, you have two choices. You can be a man, look yourself in the mirror and say, you got yourself here. And it's up to you to get yourself out. And you have to choose differently and make different choices to change the way you know your life unfolds. Like no one's coming to save you. He's like, or you can go be a victim and go cry in the corner, say, woe is me, be pessimistic, blame it, ready for your problems. Like most people will do that. And in that moment, I felt empowered, Kat, for one of the first times in my life because I had this guy who really had no skin in the game. He was just my cellmate that was, was really telling me some hard truths that I, that I needed to accept.
1: How long did it take for that to sink in? Cause often, you know, somebody gives you some sobering advice and, and often we just reject that. Cause we think we know it all. Or did you right away go, hold on, there's something to this.
0: I think I just wanted something more for my life at that point. Yeah. Like I always deep down, like knew I deserved better as a person because I was always like a sweet kid. I was always kind to people. I mean, despite yeah. like the manipulative tactics I used or how I behaved as a kid, I mean, I was I was just hurting, and it was just a a symptom of the pain that I was continuing to endure for so long. And at that point, I I really I was so down and out. I, I tried nearly everything to fix my life, and nothing worked. And all the the drugs at that point were completely completely out of my system. And I started to think more logically and Mm. was like, all right, like by this time I'm 21, I've damaged relationships. I'm a convicted felon. I'm a drug addict, pretty out of shape physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. I've had 21 jobs at this point, which is insane. Clearly, I don't know what to do. So let's try this. And I took him up on his offer. And this is one of the things that I think so many people struggle with, and that is worrying about what other people think of you. And this got exposed for me really, really quick because I'm in this common area of, of jail and there's all these grown men like watching me get down and do a push-up. And that was one of the things that terrified me was not just like what I was gonna do, like not just like what what actions I was gonna take, but what other people say about me no matter what I did. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting down to do a push-up and collapsing. couldn't even do one for my knees could barely walk up and down the steps because I was also smoking a pack, pack packing half of cigarettes a day. Mm. And I just felt so invigorated and motivated to finally transform my life in that moment. And my cellmate agreed to train me in there during my 90 day sentence every single day. And then we came up with a workout plan. We came up with some goals, which were to, to run a mile. And do a set of ten push-ups by the time I left my jail sentence, and sure enough, I was able to do it. Like one push-up led to two, two led to three, three led to four, and so on and so on. And I felt I felt a lot light off like a light bulb go off inside my head that I finally, like I said, was ready to make this change in my life. I started to do things I'd never done before and feel things I'd never felt before. I finally was able to get comfortable being uncomfortable. I finally had some discipline that I never had before. I finally was walking with like a different swagger and talking to myself in a different way. I had that smile back that was always like on the inside, but because I was so like weighed down from all the brokenness, it never showed on the outside. I finally started to get that back. Mm. And my life changed in there, Kat. And Mm. I remember like the day I left, I cried. Because I was like, how am I ever going to repay this guy for helping to to save my life? And I just said to him, like, man, like, what am, what am I going to do without you? And like, how can I repay you? And he was just like, don't mess up and pay it forward. And I didn't know what paying it forward meant, by the way, because I'd never read any kind of personal gr- growth book or spirituality, self-help, nothing back then. I was just like, all right, man. And he gave me a workout plan that I still have framed in my place today. So I never forget where I came from. Got out lost a bunch of weight. And then that's what inspired me to become a trainer.
1: Pay it forward. Okay. What is his name? Are you able to say? His I first
0: can say name is Eric. Yeah. I dedicated my first book to him. To Eric. Yeah.
1: Well, you talked about while being incarcerated, it's the everyday piece. And it's like, we're going to build on this. We're going to do this many, and then we're going to add, and then we're going to do into this many. And it's but every day it was the consistency. And, you know, I've talked about this on my show here in different terms, but similarly, what got me healed from essentially a broken heart, but more than that, the brokenness that we've both shared about just life in general and the hand we have been dealt in some ways, but it was that discipline. That piece is so, so important. And as you well know, had you not then taken that into your life again, outside of the walls of prison, you could have easily said if it were just your mindset and you come out of prison and then you're like, you know, a week goes by, and you let go of those habits. I mean, you could have easily regressed and backslid back into old habits and all of that. So, you decided you wanted to dedicate your your health and wellness and mindset all kind of wrapped in this this idea of fitness and that becoming your new your new game. How did you? Establish that and and how did you stick with it? Because again, you could have, you know, just gotten out of there and went right back to those old unhealthy habits, but you did not.
0: I talk about this idea a lot on reattaching behavior to emotion. And I I'm not a neuroscience. Neuroscientists, when it comes to habit formation or creating new neural pathways or anything, but I think I created some new neural pathways when I was in jail on reattaching behavior to emotion. Because before my, well, before I went to jail, when I would get anxious, stressed, depressed, it was like, oh, I'm anxious, do a drug. I'm stressed, do a drug. If I'm depressed, like go eat a bunch of food, and that was like my normal. That became what my brain was used to. And when I got to jail, I was stripped. Of all those masks, the mask of addiction came off, the mask of needing to fit in came off, the mask of um, mismanaging my emotions, all that stuff came off. And I was forced to sit with myself completely naked, spiritually, emotionally, and mentally. And I learned to harness a lot of this negative pain and emotion into something positive. And one story that comes to mind that that I was just talking about the other day is I tell this story of when my dad came to visit me in jail and then you'll see where this is going and how it relates to when I got out of jail. For people who are listening to this or they're watching this where they know the, the the typical like visitor center in jail, you got the glass window, you got one person on the phone, you got another person on the phone. And he's sitting there yelling at me like with my brothers there. He's like you're going to rehab. Like da da da, da. I'm like I'm not going to rehab like I found fitness and he was like, no, 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 no. Like just kept yelling at me. And I was like, why are you yelling at me? Like, I'm in jail. Like, what else do you want from me? Like, I'm in the worst possible situation right now. And I remember just hanging up on him, walking out, walking into the common area, walking up to my cellmate and said, Let's work out. And he was just like, huh? Like, what? What did you just say to me? Because he was always the one like initializing it with me. He was always the one, like, all right, Doug, come on, get down, to do your push-ups. But something changed. And that's when I, I learned this beautiful thing where. You could take some of the my past trauma, anger, and negative emotions and channel it into something positive. And that carried on with me for when I got out to where I just focused on like proving people wrong. When I when I initially got out, I was like focused on proving people wrong because all these people were betting against me. They were like, there's no way he's gonna make it. He's going back to jail, he's gonna relapse, like he's a piece of crap, he's a felon. And I took that attitude and I applied it literally like one day at a time. And I'm not somebody, I didn't get, go to AA or NA. So this was just something that organically I just knew I had to do was that I knew that if I spent my, my energy thoughts and time focusing on the, the odds that were so stacked against me, right. I knew that if I put my thoughts and emotions into what other people thought that I was going to lose because the odds were against me. Like, I I mean, so against me with everything that was going on. And I knew that the other choice I had was to have blind faith and just give it everything I possibly could into that 10% belief in myself that I had after I got out of jail or whatever it was. And knowing that if I could just do everything possible every single day to become a better version of myself, it gave me a shot to continue to live. So there was some like non-negotiables. It was working out. It was making sure that I was eating well. It was making sure that I was doing my best to, to talk to myself in a positive way. It was just staying focused. And then one day, again, it was just like the one push up turned into two. It was like one day turns into two, turns into three. And then I look back, it's like a week, two weeks later. And it's like, wow, I'm on my own. Haven't touched drugs. I've been working out. Like I can do this. And then that just continued to stack on itself, and it inspired me to do other things. It inspired me to, to change my circle of friends. It inspired me to start looking into getting a job as a trainer. It inspired me to being like hyper aware of like the way the people around me were like really impacting me on a, on a mental and emotional level. And then it ultimately got me comfortable spending time alone. Like I I, I joke around a lot that. A lot of my time when I was living with my grandparents at the time, I was spent watching the Food Network and like dancing with the stars with my grandparents on the couch and like a, during the week and on the weekends because I just got so comfortable with myself. And that was the one thing I was always scared of was being alone. And I, I don't know if we talked about this on, on our podcast we did or not, but I learned that like you feel way more alone hanging out with the wrong people than you ever will, like spending time by yourself. Yeah. And that's what I realized. And I realized that even though it sucked and it was really challenging to kind of do it, what I did, that if I continued to invest in myself and personal growth, that I would start to attract the right people in my life that would form this new circle of friends. And and then the paying it forward piece was was huge in my own fitness journey because that was like a big part of it was I had this, I felt like I had this new gift, this, this secret almost I'm like, oh my gosh, like fitness can be like the cure for addiction or not, I mean, not the cure, but it can be this, this coping mechanism for addiction and stress and anxiety. Like I got to share the message. I got to share the good word. And then when I became a trainer, my new high became helping people because I felt like I was a not letting my cellmate down and b just helping other people like learn the lessons and the power of fitness that I did.
1: Uh, uh. God, I saw your grandparents in some videos online. They're so cute. I love that you, that they took you in and you had a place to, to go and, and they gave you some boundaries. Like you have to do A, B, C, D, and E. And if you do, you can stay here. And that was kind of like your new lease on life. But man, everything you're saying, it's it's wild that back then, and by the way, being young in your early 20s, right? Like that that, it's like, It's like, you know, what you're talking about and describing growth mindset, paying it forward, a new healthy high, like engaging in all these new habits, staying consistent. All of these things are what so many people takes years of self-help books and, you know, research and like seminars and TED talks to, to, to let all of that sink in firstly and then secondly actually live it and apply it to your own life you 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 really sound wise beyond words in that you had all of these kind of realizations you kind of knew what to do like almost inherently you you had that in there somewhere so it just makes so much sense to me that that now you are giving your gifts as a teacher and a coach and a fitness coach and all that but but without question mindset is everything right? Like, because if you don't, I mean, because you're not even going to do the physical piece if you're not in the right headspace, right? So, for people who are listening, now that you are, you know, you've written three books, you are sharing your story, you are sharing other people's stories to help people when they are struggling with adversity, whatever that looks like for any one person. Talk to me a little bit about mindset because I, again, here we are in 2022 and people are losing their jobs. People are turning, I'm sure, to drugs and alcohol, me included, to to kind of escape the realities of today. And where is the shift? What can they do? What is your advice to just start to ignite the possibility, the invitation, the opportunity to start to live differently? Because even with all of these other variables, many of which we cannot control, and I know that's one of your messages, control the controllable, right? But how do they begin?
0: Well, I think number one is to realize you're not alone, especially in the self-help personal development space, or even people, I'm sure people who are listening to this are like on their way to that, where they're so far focused on personal growth that they feel that just because they're on this path that hardship isn't going to come. And that's just so far from the truth. And just knowing that even me, even like, as I'm talking to you, like you shared, we all are struggling, but I think the the big thing that can be the ultimate hack for people is self awareness and really being aware of what it is you're going through, being aware of your habits and your choices being aware of what you can control because you're right. There's so much we can't control now. There's so much we we couldn't control back in 2017. There's going to be so much we can't control in 2030. So really getting dialed in on what you can control. And like, for me, that comes down to like a, when life's when, when a, when life works list, like really jotting down, like, okay, like when my life is on, like, what are the, what are those things look like? And it could be for me, like staying hydrated. It could be like, eating well, 90% of the time, like social interaction, multiple times a week with people. It could be pursuing a goal fitness wise. I mean, I go on with my examples, but you have to come up with that for yourself because most of the time, while we are in the midst of a time right now, it's a bit different. There's still a lot you can control. And most of the time we tend to make these problems worse because we're not doing the things that we know will actually help mitigate some of the pain, some of the adversity, some of the the pitfalls that life is throwing at us. We're not working out consistently. People are drinking too much alcohol. People are, you know, intoxicating themselves too much with drugs. People aren't interacting with people. They're in the wrong relationships. I can go on and on with these examples and they're not taking care of their health.
1: Right. And they're lying to themselves. I mean, we talked about this. It's it's you're exactly right. Like you cannot, possess the awareness. If you are lying to yourself. And that was me too. I mean, that was one of my big, big things was like the self-betrayal you have you cannot lie to yourself anymore. So people have to recognize those masks that they do own and that they are wearing and really get intimately familiar with that in in order to change. I mean that you're, you're so right. Like that's step one.
0: Yeah. And like, the one thing that I think is, should be a theme for people, in my opinion, is just keeping things simpler. Like I think at the end of the day, people don't need to exercise more. They just need to move. They need yeah. to move their bodies. No. And we like to overcomplicate things no. instead of just keeping it simple.
1: That's so true. And that's coming from a fitness trainer. You guys like just move. Just move. That's so, that's so, so true. And that was, that was another I say gift because you know the gifts of the pandemic, but I I never used to just walk. I used to same thing. I was, I was like, oh, I gotta get to a class or I gotta do a boot camp or it's gonna require two hours. And because of the heaviness of 2020, I think is when it started, I just made this point to just walk out my front door, get out of the house breathe air, put one foot in front of the other. It is that simple. People ask me all the time, like, oh my God, what do you do? What's the thing? I'm like, just walk out your door. It is free. It is available to you. Look up at the flowers and the trees. Look at mother nature. It really is that simple. It's amazing what that can do for you mentally, emotionally, and physically to just get your steps in.
0: And and consistency is so overlooked and discipline. Like, I think it's so much more important to, to build the habit and the self-discipline than it is to just say, yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to go from not working out in the last three years. So I'm just going to all of a sudden start this plan where I go to the gym for five hours a week. It's like, no, you have to retrain your brain, your brain Mm -hmm. to put yourself first and to build that habit in there and to stop trying to negotiate with yourself and talk yourself out of going to the gym, you have to work on that first. So I always tell people when they are looking to start a program and mind you early on as a trainer, I've been a trainer for almost 11 years. Like this was not what I was telling people, but this has come from years of not only doing this, but talking to people, talking to different scientists about what it takes to actually build a habit. And what actually sticks is that you have to start small. I always say like, start with like a 10 minute walk a few days a week, and then what's going to happen after you do that 10 minute walk, you're going to be like, Oh, like, I feel so much better about myself. You're going to want more of that. Then you're going to build up to 10 to 12 Then you're going to build up to 15, three times a week. And then sure enough, three months down the road, you're, you're like running a 5k. And like, where did this all start from a 10 minute walk instead of the person that's like, yeah, I'm just going to run a 5k like on Friday. And then that, that same person who hasn't exercised in a few years, what do they, what do, they do? They try to go run the 5k. They maybe get a half a mile in they're huffing and puffing they're tired, they're burnt out, and they feel inc- incredibly defeated. They turn around, they go home and they say, see, I told you, I told you you weren't going to make it. And then they they repeat that same pattern until yeah. the next year.
1: Yeah. We were talking a little before we were recording about, about you still being a human, having a whole lot of wisdom and certainly walking the walk, but even you have days where you maybe aren't in the mood. You're not in the mood to be your best self, or maybe you don't want to go for a run or gosh, darn there is, you know, whatever that cheesy pizza over there that, you know, whatever. So how do you combat those moments? Do you show yourself compassion? Do you kind of let yourself have a day off and cheat? Or is that not an option for you? What, what, how do you deal with those moments?
0: Now I, I've learned to give myself a bit more compassion. But with that said, it doesn't mean that I just left myself off the hook all the time. We were talking about yesterday, how it was like 20 degrees outside. And I I told myself I was going to go for a run, but I didn't feel like it. And I was just like, man, I feel like a hypocrite if I'm not doing things that are hard when they get hard. But like 10 years ago, there would have been no question. And I would have done whatever it took to stick to my routine 150%. And that became toxic too, to where I was traveling on airplanes to come to California with like Grilled chicken in a bag, like grilled vegetables. I mean, all like in the, I was taking like an extra carry on on my on my trip <laughs> that was filled with like frozen chicken and broccoli. I mean, it's kind of, it's oh,
1: kind of uh, yeah. that's actually really sweet, but probably a little stinky for the person next to you. <laughs> well, and
0: it, but it was frozen, so it wouldn't really smell. But with that okay. said, that's just to get painted a picture of how over-disciplined I was with it, but it became bad for my lifestyle too, where I wasn't going out. I wasn't dating mm. because I was like afraid of mm. like eating unhealthy because
1: mm.
0: in my mind, I was so used to having this mindset that if I did anything possible, I was so terrified of going back to jail that I thought that if I did anything remotely close to the person that I was before I went to jail, that I was going to somehow go down that same path destructive pattern that I did before I went to jail. So that was like something that drove me to be hyper focused on that. But it led to me be be, essentially developing an eating eating disorder, be body dysmorphia, vanity issues where my body was like my drug. And I got down to like 5% body fat. Mm. And I thought that would be like happiness for me. Because if you had told me when I was a teenager, like Doug, what do you want? Like, like, what do you want to be happy? I would have been like, I want a six pack. I want big arms. And I want like pretty girls to be interested in me. And I had all that like in my early twenties and I still wasn't happy. Like mm-hmm. when I got out of jail and I got down to a 5% body fat, like I had that going for me and it was still missing. And that's what started my, my spiritual journey was that whereas where I got to this place where I was so low and just still spiritually broken. I didn't even really realize it until I had I would look at myself in the mirror and I would still see like the old Doug in the mirror. I would look at myself in the mirror and still look at myself with defeat or I would see certain insecurities still. And I didn't know why, like people were telling me that it looked like Mark Wahlberg and I didn't, like, I didn't believe it because I still saw this old me in the mirror. And I asked some friends that were a bit older than me that had, were in the fitness space. i you know, had been around for a bit longer and I just said like, why am I struggling with this? And they're like, what was your childhood like? And I was, and I, I, was like, you guys know what happened. My parents got divorced, da, da 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 da, and they're like, well, I think you should dive more into that. And what happened is I had created this level of cognitive dissonance because my my brain was just wired to to know that I looked a certain way because during my growth stages and in my younger years, that's what I was told. Like you're ugly, like you're fat, like you're all these things. So just because my body physically had changed, mentally and emotionally, my mindset as it attached to that hadn't changed. Mm. And that was something that was, it was some deep rooted work that I needed to address. But once I did that, it un it unlocked this self-compassion for myself that was like, Doug, you're not the same person you used to be. It's okay. Like it's okay if you eat a of, a slice of pizza. Like it's okay if you go out on a date and don't eat like a salad with chicken or whatever. Like it's okay. Yeah. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. You know, they think that they're in this all or nothing mentality, especially when they want to make a transformation that they feel like if they eat like one thing bad, it just means that like everything's going to, going to fall apart. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, that's so, I think important what you said too, about. Many of us are searching or many people are out there. Like you said, if I have this nice house, I'll be happy. If I, if I could drive that car, maybe I'll be happy. If I find this partner, finally, I will be happy. But so much of the work, even if you are doing that external work and you got your lists, like you're describing and you're, and you're being so diligent, if you don't deal with or face or really work through often your past or that trauma or whatever then you'll always kind of be stuck. You'll be on to the next and the next and you're always trying to fill up from something on the outside rather than than dealing with what is on the inside. Let's talk a little bit about romantic relationships because just to give everybody the background too cuz you know Doug and I became friends on social media and I'm always and and you're one of my thank you It sure is a beautiful day, listeners. And we're always on there, Kate and I, talking about dating and apps and the highs and the lows. And I was on there one day for people who missed that episode. A guy had texted me and said, Good morning, beautiful. And I was like, Oh, isn't that sweet? And Kate was like, Oh my God, douchebag, so creepy red flag. And Doug chimes in. He's like, wait a minute. What about our perspective? And I was like, that's such a good point. We need, I I love having you on Doug, but I, I think I can count on less than one hand, how many guys I've had on this show in the last year. So I'm glad that you're here. And we thought maybe you could add a little perspective.
0: In my opinion, what I like with, with certain women is like that they're more direct versus indirect. Like they kind of like are more upfront with you about either what they want or how they like to uh, like what their love languages are or things that they want in a relationship. And I think, you know, you and I were talking about how like one of the things that you had admired and wanted in a relationship was when a guy would say like, good morning to you. Like that's part of like your thing is like affirmations and stuff like that. And I think when we were talking about it, I think I said like what really matters isn't like what he said. It's like a, like what was attached with it? Was it just like a good morning, like I'm thinking about you, or was it like something with like a, a picture or something, which then can be, then it's kind of like a little bit weird, I guess. If you, if you <laughs> well, especially because I think you you didn't really know that person that long. Right. So it wasn't like you were in a serious committed, like you weren't in a committed relationship. But what I was going to, what I was saying though, is like, I think it's hard for guys too, because I said, I've been in situations where I've gotten to know somebody a fair amount of, a fair amount of time. And you think that the right thing to, to do is to shoot them a good morning text because you're like, well, maybe they want to hear that. Like, that's what they want. And then you do it and then they don't even respond. They don't respond for like 24 hours or even at all. And then you kind of, your intuition's like, well, maybe they thought that was kind of creepy that you sent that. And then there's it's this, you could have done that with the same, a different girl that, you didn't send the good morning text to, and then she wanted it. You just never know. And it's like, it's just so hard.
1: You're so right. I, I, in regards to that and maybe other things when it, it comes to dating, I just don't think there's one blanket answer that is the correct, the correct, the right or the wrong thing to do. And that's, I think what I was kind of my point when we were debating that earlier was, is like, you're, you're right. It all depends, right? It depends on the person. It depends on their love language. It depends on time invested. It depends on so often, sadly, there is no manual and there is no book and there is no, you just have to go with, with your feelings and, and your intuition and what feels right. And by the way, if that person rejects that, then it, you know, that's not your person, right?
0: Right. Well, and the one thing too, is like when it, when it comes to being upfront, like, you know, I have a, a friend of mine who she's been told that she's like needy or she like acknowledges it and accepts it. And I just said, I've always said to her, like when she's dating, I was like, listen, like tell whoever it is that you're trying to talk to or you're dating, like that you just, just that you're needy. And that there's going to be times that when you're stressed, like you need your partner to support you, there's times when you're anxious, like you just you're the type of person that needs someone To kind of like walk you through that, like you'll do your own part, but you'll, you need some help. And I was like, and guys kind of like, I would like that. Like if somebody was like, Hey, like I'm needy, I'm just letting you know, like I have so many great qualities, but there's the one thing that I know is something I'm trying to work on is I know that when I get stressed I get overwhelmed, I'm just letting you know that when I'm going through it, I'm going to kind of need you to help me. If you can, then I know like, okay. Instead of like somebody just randomly blowing my phone up, like it all, all ends of the day. And I'm like, why is this person like blowing my phone up and I'm not even answering it? And then like indirectly, I find out that that person like needs the extra attention during those times. Instead of me knowing upfront, that that's like what they need, then I can accept that and then build that into my day. Does that make sense?
1: It makes complete sense. And you're so right. And that just goes with people being vulnerable. You cannot lose because if a girl is super needy and she gives you that heads up and if that freaks you out or if you're not compatible with that type of energy, then guess what? Maybe you'll know way ahead of time that maybe this isn't the partner for you. But if she tells you that and you can file it, like you just said, then it's that knowingness that will will help you guys navigate and be closer and and know what's coming and I I really like that. And that just boils down to what we all know, which I think is relationship 101 is just communicate, communicate because there's a lot less confusion or things, you know, are just far more clear when we're I guess laying it on the table, but that can be hard for people. What would you for our mostly female audience What would you think women should know or need to know or would be helpful to know about your species? (laughs) Uh, Like, what's the one thing you wish women knew about dudes when it came to dating that might just simplify things for everybody a little bit?
0: I mean, I think first and foremost, that we're not perfect and that we're going to say the right thing. The wrong things at times we might come off a bit awkward. We might know, not know how to navigate this because a lot of this is new for us too, especially, especially like in the online world. I would say that I think if you'll, if a if a guy likes you, I think you'll know.
1: That's a good one. That's just such a it's so true. You'll know. And yeah, if you're wondering, right, there's your answer.
0: I think if if a guy is like willing to pursue a relationship with you, you'll also know because you'll see him putting in effort, putting in the work, and also like that we're kind of going into this somewhat naive as well with what that person likes. And, you know, I think especially in this online world where we're learning how to communicate with somebody new and we don't know them that well, we don't know their love languages. We don't know specifically how they like to communicate. Like there's going to be some growing pains initially.
1: Yeah.
0: And I think that just comes with the territory and
1: Yeah. It's not like the fairy tale blew up because, you know, there's some bumps like that's just human nature.
0: Right. And then also the one thing about like, I guess, guys is that we think completely differently than than women. I mean, one of the books that changed my life was men are from Venus, women are from Mars or might be back. I forget. But. Men are from, it's the, I always, it is. I
1: always switch it around too. I'm not sure, but I know what you're talking about. I never did read it, but I, it certainly makes but I, sense. But I
0: saw this, I saw this video that totally put it into perspective for me. And this was, this girl had a nail, like it had a nail in her forehead and she's like sitting there and she's upset. Obviously she's got a nail in her head and I think it's a nail. And the, and the guy's like, well, let me just pull it out. And she's like, no, like get away from me. And he was like, let me just pull it out. Like he's trying to like fix the situation for her. And like, she just kept getting angry and angry. But the minute he just said, he just sat there and just listened. It was like, I'm so sorry. Like she was like, oh, it's okay. And she totally like let her guard down. But that's like how it is. Like guys want to fix things. Just the way we're we're wired. Like where we are wired to be like, the, like the, the, the provider. We are wired to be the person that helps you make you feel safe. Like we are wired that way, like instinctively. Yeah. So if you're going through something hard or if a guy is giving you advice on something, it's not because he thinks less of you. It's not because he doesn't think you're beautiful. It's not because he thinks that you're less of you, you're less of a human than him. It's just because he genuinely cares. Like that's how we show that we care mm. is by, by not wanting you to have problems, not wanting you to have, not wanting you to have to go through pain. Does that make it the right way to handle it? I mean, of course not, but you see that a lot with communicate communication breakdowns between the female and the male is that yeah. we communicate differently.
1: Oh, that's such a good reminder because especially as egos are involved in mm-hmm. relationships and especially as a quote unquote strong woman like myself, that's certainly gotten me into trouble in the past because I'll almost be offended because it's like, I've been so used to taking care of myself and looking out for number one and doing it all and being a single mom. And it's just like, and so sometimes I have been unable to let men take care of me because for that reason, I'm just, it's, it's almost like I have this defense mechanism up at all times. It's that protect and survive thing where it's like, I got it. I got it. And that you're so right. Like, it's not personal. doesn't mean you don't got it. I'm actually, I, you've probably seen the news. I am in a new relationship. And part of that is I have to, it's what I've always wanted. I literally was thinking this the other day because when people would say, well, what is it you do want, Kat? And what do you want? And what does it look like at this phase in your life? And and to even say out loud, it it would be really nice for someone to show up and want to take care of me. And I don't mean that financially. I just meant like, if someone could just draw me a bath and like, I wouldn't even have to ask, but they kind of know. And then like, to me it's the, those acts of self of not self love those acts of just love like i've just been so not used to that and i've been craving that and um and and i greg drew me my first bath last week and i was like oh and i was like this is such a moment you know but i for so long you know you say what you want but then that person shows up and are you able to 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 do that are you able to like I I have to practice again being a little softer and letting someone take care of me because I haven't known how to to accept that before. So that requires some vulnerability on my part that I I've been more aware of lately.
0: You want to know that's beautiful that you said that. You want to know something that I've just observed in you saying that and just what I know about you is that I think part of why it was so hard for you to let somebody take care of you was probably some in some ways tied to some level of insecurity because i think when we feel insecure and this is just from my own personal experience like it's hard for us to be vulnerable and say like i don't have this all figured out i'm okay with somebody helping me because i'm acknowledging that because somebody's helping me doesn't mean that i'm less of a person it just means that they're helping me And I think when we are secure and you've been on this incredible healing journey, you accept who you are for who you are and that you are whole. And that just because somebody is helping you, and wanting to take care of you, doesn't mean that you're less of a human. It just means that you've actually worked your way up to having somebody in your life that is an amazing human and and is now giving you that love that you deserve. And, And that's another thing too, like from a guy's perspective, I think. I mean, I would, I would hope that a lot of guys would agree with me on this is that we love what, when, when women are vulnerable, like we love it when women open up to us instead of us trying to figure things out the hard way as the relationship progresses and things start to come out more indirectly. Like, like I want someone to open up and tell me about all their stuff. Yeah, You know, I want someone to open up to me and tell me like what it is they want from me because yeah. guys are, I mean, remember guys are logical guys are direct. Yeah. Like guys, most guys that it's like a plus B equals C. So if I know like a girl's like, all right, I need this. I need that. And I'm like, cool. I'm going to make a spreadsheet. I'm kidding. I'm not going to make a spreadsheet, <laughs> but that's kind of how,
1: how guys think. Yes. 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 You are so, so right. Oh my gosh. That's going to be your next podcast. <laughs> the dating podcast. I don't know. Oh. We'll have to do one together one day. Yes. Um, well, gosh, you are a wealth of information. I love your insight. I love how much you were sharing. My last question for you is just simply the one I, I try to remember to ask most of my guests, just what is your ideal of a beautiful day? How does that look to you, Doug?
0: Well, I mean, guys, it's changed over the years. I would say that my idea of a beautiful day is that I'm doing everything possible to take care of my mental health, my emotional health, my spiritual health, my physical health. And that Along the way, I am also inspiring others to do the same and uh, become the best version of themselves day in and day out.
1: Well, you're doing it. You must have a lot of beautiful days. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. And a reminder, you can catch a brand new episode of It Sure Is a Beautiful Day every Tuesday. Please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And of course, I'd love to hear from you. So leave me a rating and leave me a review. Also, follow us on social media for all the behind the scenes action and more info. That's at I am Sadler on Instagram and at ABD with Kat. Talk to you next Tuesday.
0: Seeking the truth never gets old.